and that is uh, our, our good friend Tim Lan. Um, Tim uh, has served for decades as a pastor here in the community, is retired, which means now he preaches whenever he wants, and uh, we're thankful he does. Um, Tim and Karen helped plant this church. They were here from the very beginning. Um, uh, Tim served on our fledgling leadership team, uh, kept me going in the right direction uh, all those early months when I was just swimming as a, a new church planter, wondering which direction was up. Uh, their wisdom and uh, experience has benefited all of us. And we're still here today in a large part because of their prayers and blood, sweat, and tears. So we, uh, we want to welcome you, Tim, to come share the word with us this evening. And uh, let's give Tim a big welcome. Yeah. nice to see some familiar faces, but in a way, it's, it's almost nicer to see a lot of faces I don't know, because that's an in, indication of the way God has blessed this congregation and the ministry of this congregation uh, over the years. Um, and these kids, uh, <laughs> when we, when we uh, went back to Bellingham Covenant, most of those older kids were babies. And the younger ones weren't even here yet. And so, what a blessing. And I, and I, I realized that there were quite a few that weren't here tonight. So, um, you know, thank, thank God for that. I had an uncle, uh, my mother's brother, who was a pretty interesting guy. Uh, he was very bright. He was pretty charismatic. Uh, he could do a lot of things. But what he did mostly in life was he made a lot of really bad decisions and choices. Most of them uh, fueled by alcohol dependency. His marriage ended in divorce. He, um, he turned to a life of crime, violent crime, and ended up spending many, many years in prison. When he got out of prison, as he sort of moved into his older age, happily, uh, he got his life together. He and his ex remarried, hmm. which is really cool, I think. And uh, I, think he, I think he lived uh, his later years uh, pretty put together and uh, happy guy. But I remember him saying to me once, uh, Tim, we get too smart too late. And that was sort of the story of his life. We get too smart too late. Um, he had a lot of regrets over the poor choices that he had made and, and the unhealthy relationships those choices had fostered and had uh, created. Now, you and I might not end up in prison, I hope not, like my uncle did, but who of us isn't susceptible to getting too smart too late in life? And some of you are realizing, wait a minute, I haven't lived long enough to get too smart too late. But yes, you have. Yes, you have. Uh, 20 years ago, I lifted a very heavy power lawn thatcher 
in and out of my pickup truck, blew out a disc in my back, ended up with back surgery, and I missed, uh, was out of commission as the pastor of our church for eight weeks. Chris will tell you that's a long time to be away, particularly, uh, and we had just moved into a new building, and it was, a, I mean, it was just, couldn't have been worse time. <laughs> I should have known better than, than what I did. Uh, you know, it, but I did, I did it anyway. And uh, I suspect we all should have known better at one time or another. In the uh, New Testament Gospel of Luke, the story that Keeley read a moment ago, uh, Jesus tells a story about a man who should have known better. It's in Luke 16, uh, beginning in verse 19. If you have a Bible, and I suspect you have one within reach, because if, unless things have changed, I know we used to spend an awful lot of time putting Bibles out and picking them up after the worship service. So if that's still the drill, is that, okay, well then, no excuse, you can't, well, I don't have a Bible available to me. Yes, you do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm recommending that you follow along with me because I'm going to go through this, this story verse by verse, and I think it'll, it'll just coalesce better if, you, if we do that. So open your Bibles, and you might, maybe your Bible's on a smart pad uh, of some sort or a smartphone. But if you do that, uh, no fair checking the Mariner scores or, you know, playing solitaire or anything like that. You've got to read the Bible on it if you're going to open, you know, turn it on. And here's what we need to remember. Is, as we open God's Word together, we're unsheathing something that's sharper than a two-edged sword. And to borrow language from Annie Dillard, we need to put our crash helmets on and buckle our seatbelts because the Word of God is powerful stuff. And in that spirit, would you pray with me just for a moment? Holy Spirit, I, I do pray that you will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to see and to hear and to receive from your word, what you want us to know, to hear, and to respond to. And I pray that in Christ's name, amen. During the uh, all-too-short ministry, public ministry of Jesus here on earth, he told a lot of stories. He was a great storyteller, uh, and we call them parables. And they were power-packed stories. One of them before us this evening is, I think, a gem. In my NIV Bible, it's captioned, uh, The Rich Man and Lazarus. You maybe have also heard it called Dives and Lazarus, uh, thinking that somehow or other that's the rich man's name. Well, that's not, a, that's not anybody's name, Dives. It just happens to be the Latin word for rich man, that appeared in an early translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate. So the only reason I mention that, and it sounds like you thought, wait a minute, it sounds like a seminary class here. No, no, uh, I'm just mentioning that because I don't want you to think, well, in other words, I don't want you to be 20 minutes from now thinking about, well, what's the deal with Dives? It's just, just another word for rich man. So I want to go through this verse by verse, starting at verse 19. 
I'll read the verse and then I want to comment on each one. There was, a, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He's a rich man. He's not just wealthy, he's what we would consider today uber rich. He's right up there with Bill Gates, uh, Paul Allen, and maybe any, any NBA player. Right? Those guys have so much money. Uh, this, this man is very wealthy. He's dressed in purple, fine linen. He lived in luxury. The word luxury that's translated there suggests a flashy wealth. He, um, he lived an extravagant, ex, uh, ostentatious lifestyle. And he did that, Jesus says, every day. He, he never worked, this guy. He partied all the time. Uh, he lived what many would probably consider, uh, of his contemporaries, would consider the good life. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. Of all the parables that Jesus told, and he told quite a few, this is the only one in which a character is named. Lazarus. And Lazarus literally means God has helped. And we don't want to confuse this Lazarus with a flesh and blood. This is a fic fictional Lazarus, one that just Jesus made up for the story. We don't want to confuse him with a flesh and blood Lazarus who was the brother of Mary and Martha, the three of them being good friends of Jesus, and, who, and, and whom Lazarus, uh, Jesus, brought back from the grave. Great story. If you want to read it, you can read it in, uh, in John chapter 11. And Lazarus is a poor beggar, but he's more than that. He's physically and medically a wreck. He is covered with sores. And you know, Luke, the, our author of this gospel, he's identified elsewhere in scripture as being a physician, an MD. And he uses, he alone, of all the, of all the New Testament writers, he employs uh, from time to time technical medical terms. And this is one of them, this covered what's translated covered with sores. Uh, this man, his condition is a mess medically. It's also implied that he's crippled because Jesus says he's laid at the man's gate each, probably each day by friends or family or whoever. Uh, and so the rich man, as he comes and goes, he undoubtedly knew about Lazarus. Uh, he, he saw him, and yet he probably didn't really see him. Um, the rich man, what he was missing was this, that Lazarus is no mere animal. He's a human being made in the image of God by God, whose life is of infinite value to God and should be to all others as well. Let's move on to verse 21. Uh, Lazarus is also longing, uh, Jesus says, to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. This business about food falling from the rich man's table requires a little explanation. In those days, if you were one of the uber-rich, and you were eating, and you had a, others, others with you, let's say a banquet or whatever, Nobody used a napkin. They didn't have napkins. And so if you had a little bit of 
beef juice running down your chin. You grabbed a loaf of bread, ripped off some of it, used it as a napkin, what we would, and then you throw it on the floor. So at the end of a banquet or a meal, there'd be, there'd be all this food on the floor. And Jesus is saying, he, this guy doesn't even get that. He doesn't even get the throwaways. And then to sort of underscore the miserable condition of this man, Jesus says the only ones who pay any attention to him are the dogs who come and lick his sores. Dogs are mentioned 41 times in Scripture. I don't know who figures those things out, but I read it somewhere. You know, that, and so, you know, if you prove that there are actually only 40, then good for you. But I, for our purposes tonight, 41 times in Scripture, and hardly any of those is, is a positive portrayal. Dogs don't do well in Scripture. They don't know, the Scripture writers don't know anything about Lassie or... or no, dogs like that. An example of that would be Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. I mean, that's just a, one example. You could also look up, if you want to Google Jezebel, you might want to, you'll find something about dogs in, on that as well. <laughs> Going on to verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Okay, Lazarus dies. Angels carried him, Jesus says. What a beautiful picture that is. Uh, I mean, I would love angels to, to carry me somewhere. Wouldn't you? I, I would think so. Uh, but it's, it's a beautiful description of God's care and love for Lazarus. And they carry him to Abraham's side, says. That might, you know, we might wrinkle our brow with that one. What's the deal with Abraham? Abraham is father Abraham. Jesus is in a Jewish culture. He's talking to Jews. He's, he's, he's the man. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he's using figurative language, i.e. Abraham, to depict if you will, a surrogate for God, and thus dramatically picturing the extreme care and love that uh, <clears throat> God is giving to Lazarus in the, in the afterlife. And not just to Abraham, but to his side. And the old, <clears throat> some of the, that word side can be translated, and is translated in some uh, versions of the Bible, uh, Abraham's bosom, or Abraham's breast, or, Ab or Abraham's uh, lap, and it's basically behind it is all those words are the same reality, and that is to at a banquet to lie close to the breast or or uh, at the side of the host was a position of honor and respect. And so that's picturing uh, just how wonderful Lazarus' condition is uh, compared to what he had. Now, verse twenty-three says in hell where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man is in hell. The word literally there is Hades, and we could uh, quibble all evening long about the difference between, if there is a difference between, heaven, or between hell and Hades, but the point is, in the context of this story, what Jesus is saying is, 
wherever it was or whatever we want to call it, it is a place of, it's the bad place. That's where, that's where the rich man has gone. And it's a place that none of us want to go to. And he's in torment there. We're not told exactly how, what kind of torment it is, but whatever it is, it's, it's unspeakably awful, and it's the all, total opposite of the life that he had, had enjoyed here on earth. Verse 24, the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. Send Lazarus, the rich man. You, one of the things you're going to pick up in this story is the rich man is a slow learner. Okay? Send Lazarus. He still considers Lazarus beneath him, a, a lackey, a servant, a slave. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Abraham reminds the rich man of the flip-flop nature of things now. Lazarus is not his slave. He is in no way his subordinate. Verse 26. Verse 26 reads, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. This is Abraham still speaking. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anybody cross over from there to us. A great chasm. It's an interesting term. And I think what Jesus is just pointing to is the impossibility of reversing eternal judgment. Verse 27. He answered, he, the rich man, answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The rich man he knows his brothers. He knows that they're pursuing the same kind of, real, uh, of lifestyle that he, he pursued, and therefore he knows they're doomed. But it's too late for that. Besides, in this request that, we, that I just read, you know, please send Lazarus to my, you know, warn my brothers, there is, there's an implied self-justification there by the, by the rich man. In other words, I think what he's saying is, Send Lazarus to my brothers because nobody, nobody warned me because if somebody, had, if, if somebody had, you know, like a Lazarus had warned me, well, I would have shaped up. I would have repented. I, would, I wouldn't have done the things I did. I would have lived a, a much more God-honoring life or whatever. Abraham's not buying it. Verse 29, he replies, They have Moses and prophets. Let them listen to them. They have Moses and the prophets. They, the brothers. They have Moses and the prophets. A statement, it's a statement of fact and of rebuke. And what it means is, see, the term Moses and the prophets to first century Jews would be shorthand for what we call the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. And what Jesus is driving at here is that God, through his Holy Scriptures, has given sufficient revelation regarding his nature and his will for their lives. I don't think folks are going to be able to spend or to plead ignorance before God at the judgment. 
And the Apostle Paul really says the same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Back to the slow learner, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent, meaning Lazarus. This man, he won't, he won't give up. He's basically saying, no, Father, Ham, Father Abraham, I, I don't think you under, quite understand. I know my brothers. They're just like me. And if you'll give them a supernatural sign that they can't ignore, like having Lazarus return to them from the dead. In other words, dazzle them with magic or, or supernatural footwork, then they'll, oh, I'm sure they'll get the message and shape up. And Abraham replies in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And I would just wrap up that last statement on the part of Abraham with one word. I think what he's saying is to the guy is, seriously? Seriously? And with that, Jesus ends this uh, rather, I think rather abruptly, this story, this parable. And so the question is, why did he tell this story? What's the point? The parables of Jesus... They usually have one point. Not always, but in the vast majority of them, there's one, one teaching point. And so we have to be careful that we don't dissect a parable of Jesus and, and try to figure out, well, I wonder what this character represents, and I wonder what that action represents, and I wonder what this character represents. Instead, we'll get bogged down and we'll, we'll miss the point, the, the main point. An example of that would be, Jesus told another parable once about a, a widow who had a legal complaint. She took it to a judge, and the judge turns out to be an unjust judge, Jesus says. And he blows her off. He won't listen to her. But she doesn't give up. She goes back to him. He blows her off again. She goes back to him. He, she, he blows her off again. He keep, she keeps pestering the guy until finally he says to himself, I don't give a rip about giving this lady justice, but if, if, if I don't do something, she's going to drive me crazy. And so he grants her justice, a ruling. Now, Jesus told that story for one reason, and one reason only, in the context of prayer. He says, in prayer, be like that widow. Don't give up. Persevere. And that's a great message for all of us who are praying for loved ones and, and acquaintances and what have you who'd, who face a Christless eternity. Don't give up. That's the main point. What is not the main point of that story about the unjust judge is that, oh, Jesus is saying that God is like an unjust judge. No, not at all. That would be a terrible mistake to conclude that. And that would be a, doing a disservice to the idea of, of a parable. So what's the primary point of this story about the, uh, about the um, rich man and Lazarus? 
I believe we see it in the last statement by Abraham to the rich man. Jesus wants those religious stuffed shirts, the Pharisees, who've been listening to him, to know he's speaking to them. A few verses earlier in chapter 16, Jesus had been teaching about the pitfalls that worshiping money can produce. And he says to them, you cannot serve God and money. The very next words that Luke records after that are these. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at him. I believe he's warning those Pharisees and anybody else who hardens their heart and chooses not to be convinced that his own resurrection from death will not convince them. And they'll continue to reject them, him to their own peril. And those words still hold true today. If people are not willing to hear and receive the word of God, a miracle like somebody coming back from the dead, it's not going to convince them. A parable, this parable about the rich man and Lazarus, hear this, is not describing what life is like after we die. Okay? You know, we're not going to get carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, worse things could happen to us than that, I suppose. But that's not the point of the story. Jesus told this to emphasize vividly the great seriousness of life on this side of the grave. And so our first concern should be to be certain we're not like those Pharisees. We're not people of closed minds, of hard hearts. Be open to the full truth of God. Sure, there is certainly a serious warning in this parable. I mean, we don't want to someday arrive at the threshold of eternity with the only thing that we could say is, I should have known better. We certainly don't want to someday be standing before the judgment seat of God and hear him say, yes, you should have known better. And then the worst horror of all, to hear him say, and it's too late. Yeah, the parable the parable's a warning, but... But, remember, B-U-T is one of the most important theological words in all of Christianity. Check me on that. Ask your pastor. I'll bet he'll back me up on that. But, it's a loving and it's a merciful warning. It's a great affirmation about the amazing love and grace that God has for us. In fact, his love is so great that he doesn't want us to face an uncertain eternity. And so Christ has, by going to the cross, suffering, suffering the judgment that he suffered on the, on the cross, he has gone to inexpressibly great effort to make it possible for us to stand at the threshold of eternity and to know that we are Christ's man, Christ's woman, Christ's child. And therefore, we don't need to fear any condemnation because in dying on the cross, all the condemnation that we deserve fell on him. So the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one, it reminds us that on this side of the grave, what we do or not do with Jesus is critical 
And number two, it assures us of the infinite love and mercy and grace that God offers us. And that's why Christianity is called the good news, and it's because, and it's why it's not just the good news, but the best news any of us will ever hear. God, by your remarkable grace, remove from our hearts any and all hardness. Give us a new, fresh love for Christ and all that he can mean to us. And I pray that in his glorious and precious name. Amen.